Well, welcome to another Creative Four podcast. Shahid here. I must say, I've been wanting to do this one um, for years. Since we came up with the idea of doing a podcast, this chat was basically at the top of my list of people that I wanted to get on. Couldn't be happier to say that today we're joined by Jeremy Perot. Hey, Jeremy. Hi, how are you? How are you doing? I'm really well. Although I think it's your morning. It's my evening over Friday. So it's always... always um... I guess old habits die hard. It's always weird to uh, take a phone call knowing that the other guy's probably still got a toothpaste place in the mouth. Oh, yeah, um, and my pajamas. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, it's about 10 o'clock here when, in London. What, what is it? Found about 7 o'clock in Sydney. Yeah, but in this day and age, it's like reading the news. The guy's wearing a suit and tie above, and he's wearing his underwear and socks below. So. <laughs> yeah. That's conjured quite an imagination for anyone li- listening to this, I suppose. <laughs> Thank you again for taking the time out. I know that um, there are many people listening to these podcasts now, and I know that every single person who does follow you know, our, our chats will, will be dying to know what you're up to, what's been going on with you. But before we get to any of that, I think it would just be fantastic and, you know, real privilege for anyone listening to this, just to sort of understand how it all started for you. And I must say, you know, when I when I got in touch with you the other day, and the only reason why I got in touch with you is because I heard you on another podcast, the Forecast podcast <laughs> that you, you started with... Um, Aid and Selwyn and Frank and it was just mm. so lovely to hear some some familiar voices um, and, I, and I got in touch straight away with Selwyn and said oh you know could you give me Jeremy's contact you know I'd love to I'd love to get in touch with him again and, and thankfully you did you know you sort of responded and I you know the first thing that I wrote and literally I didn't even have to think about it the first thing I said was you know the moment I started in healthcare you were without a doubt without a doubt the most influential creative within our industry and you were so you know we've never worked with each other we've had the odd chat here and there at the odd award show um but you were certainly a huge huge figure that i think fundamentally transformed the creative standard across the board and i think that's such a testament to you as an individual and you know i just wanted to say that publicly as well because i genuinely mean it and i know there are many many people who have not only worked with you who, who say that but there are lots of people like myself who've never worked with you but have only just admired the work that you've done at a distance and i think it's it's quite quite a testament to you as a person so let, let's go back to the beginning let's see how it all starts how how do you become a legend jeremy go back as far as you want well um a bit difficult to talk right now for that. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to have to take uh, a couple of seconds and um, grab some air. <laughs> uh, anybody <laughs> knows, me, uh, knows me pretty well knows I'm very emotional. And, um, yeah, thank you for that. No, um, well, you know, I speak from the heart. And, you know, I think it was uh, – it, it's all completely – you know, heartfelt and there's, there's no bullshit in that. And I just think, you know, the whole series of these podcasts is to give an, an, an element of inspiration, uh, to anyone in the industry or anyone wanting to get into the industry. And I just can't think of anyone better, uh, to pick their brain than you. So yeah, take your time. <laughs> it's, it's no rush. Well, thanks for giving me that little bit of breather there. Cause I'm over that. And, um, Good. <laughs> um, Look, where it all started for me, um, advertising, <clears throat> and, um, and and what what it was was, uh, it's actually you know, 
I love it. I love this fucking business. I've, I've loved it from the day I was a, I was a student as an art, as a young um, design student um, at RMIT in Melbourne, which is now part of Melbourne University. But back in those days, um, long hair, fuzzy little goatee and caftan tops and army pants and a portfolio with Bob Dylan quotes written all over it, wondering, I don't know where the fuck I'm going, but, I, you know, I'm going somewhere. One day on my tram ride down the Melbourne, Melbourne's equivalent of Madison Avenue, which is far more tree-laden, um, I used to see these really glossy offices, which were pretty cool, and I kept seeing the same four-wheel drive with this guy in a beard and a blonde woman next to him every day, and I was wondering, what does that guy do for a living? And as I was going to the end of my final year in design... How old are you then? Oh, I must have been 20-ish, somewhere in there. So were you born in Melbourne? No, I was born in Kenya, East Africa, in Nairobi. Oh, really? How come? Um, well, my dad was inspector of police. My mum was a nurse, and uh, they met there. And um, he was Irish. She's English. She's a Catholic. She's a Protestant. She's um, no, he was Protestant. She's Catholic. And um, yeah, I guess the, the complete mix of, of the relationship. Um, he came. He came from a long line of, of police in Ireland, and mum came from um, family who had a lot of ties with India and the trade of India, which was why she um, she was, uh, I think, the, the youngest daughter. Anyway, uh, so I was born in Kenya, and then um, Dad left the police and moved to Australia. And um, How old were you then? I arrived in Australia when I was approaching six and a half, seven, somewhere around there. Okay, okay. And, um, yeah, very English little accent and a blonde hair and a pudding basin haircut, you know. I, I couldn't. I couldn't swear, and I couldn't. I couldn't pronounce the words the Australians did, and uh, so, you know, <laughs> going with all the uh, all the Australianisms back then, what you were put through as a kid. Um, I ended up playing footy for the local high school, being a pretty fast runner, and apparently pretty good at jokes. But what I was very good at was was drawing, so okay. that got me into um, uh, Royal Melbourne, and um, from there into design. And design was graphic design was, was pushing me toward fine art and being a painter and whatever that was. But I yeah. started seeing, um, as I said before, on my tram ride, I'd see this cool guy in his four-wheel drive with cowboy boots and, um, you know, pretty slick-looking bloke. And um, never knew what he did, but he kept pulling into this really cool glass building, which was like, well, where's a guy doing a car like that, doing a building like that? Because I don't know what goes on in those buildings, but, it must be something pretty cool. Anyway, yeah. at the end of my fourth year sort of came to an end. Um, one of my lecturers said, um, what are you going to do? And I said, I have no idea. Uh, but I did see these things in the paper, which I really liked, and I didn't really understand them. And um, they were ads. And I, that sounds pretty stupid to say now, but back then when you were just a goofy kid looking through the newspaper, apart from things for sale, um, you don't really look at an ad until something grabs your attention. And back then, mm. there was an agency called the Campaign Palace, started up by Lionel Hunt and Ronnie Mather and Gordon Trembath and a few other pretty cool guys, all out of London, Saatchi, etc. And uh, they were being quite revolutionary in what they were doing as far as the advertising goes. And so these ads I'd seen were, for example, one was a photograph down the legs of, of a person with their feet crossed, on a white beach looking straight out to a turquoise blue ocean and a blue sky with a really clean Frank, uh, Franklin Bowl condensed headline reversed out of the blue sky that says workers' compensation. 
In the bottom right-hand corner, it said, everyone deserves a holiday after working hard. Great Keppel Island in Queensland. And it was for a whole, it was an island resort. And there were a couple of ads. There was workers' compensation. There was get wrecked on Great Keppel, W-R-E-C-K-E-D. Um, and a number of other ads which just looked stunning. And in those days, you used to see in the bottom right-hand corner the credit of the agency. So it was keeping oh, really? P-A-L-C-E, yeah. So I went there and I and I met the guys. And again, you know, there's this building. Looks like, it looks like a house. And there were all these slick cars out the front and um, very, very seductive interior. You know, you just don't expect that, particularly when you're a student. And, you know, if anything, you're, you're used to walking into the bank to cash your student check. And that's probably the only thing you're going to see inside the institution. But to see these with particular company and ads mirrored and photographed and framed on a wall with all these awards and this really cool environment with music playing and cool people everywhere. And I just figured out that I, I kind of like want to be in here. And so um, I started, uh, what I did for my final year was, and I think this is where the turn point was, and it was pure naivety. That's what it gets down to, pure naivety. And if a student ever asks me, um, even if, even if uh, a seasoned creative ever asks me, I'll always tell them, um, follow your heart, trust your gut, don't listen to your brain, because your brain's the, your brain's the lawyer's solicitor, the legal department, just to do a sense check. But your heart <laughs> and gut's telling you, I really want to do this. I don't know why, but I really want to do yeah. this. So um, I ended up deciding to interview all the creative directors in Melbourne um, of big agencies, figuring on two things. One is uh, for my for my um, final diploma. Uh, essay to figure out what the creative team was and at the same time it would give me an entree through the front door past applying for an interview to meet the guy that would hopefully one day employ me and so I got to meet an awful lot of cool guys in the in the ad industry and one great quote which kept repeating itself and I said I want to look I want to I want to discover what the creative team's all about they'd say to me when you do discover it can you come and tell me because I don't know any of these pricks that they know what they're doing (laughs) But it was really look. It was it was great. I got into Burnett's and Dasachi's and a whole bunch of other places, um, and they were just really motivating environments and just full of people you would never see if you had to go through the careers department of any institution. And in the end, I remember telling my daughters, "We're going to go to careers day." But the first thing I'm going to say is, and I was told, "Don't say anything, Dad. Just shut up. Don't say." Anything. <laughs> Well, I couldn't help myself. You know, my my son, my youngest daughter is a designer illustrator, and I remember saying to this careers guy, "Wait." Just because she's going to learn all these applications for a laptop and you're saying she's going to get a job, what you're saying is she's going to go work for a sweatshop where yeah. an art director is going to give her a shitty layout from somebody who gave him a brief after lunch at the end of the week that should have come at the beginning of the week. And so it's all lying on her shoulders to sort that prick's workout overnight. <laughs> the voice of experience. Even the business. I said, yeah, and he goes, yeah, you should listen to your dad. Anyway, so um, <laughs> she did. So um, where am I going with all this? So yeah, look, um, it was it was those early days, and I got to meet these great creative directors, and that was actually my my subtle interview into Saatchi's, and I got a job at Saatchi's straight out of college, which I felt was weird because the guys ahead of me hadn't got their jobs yet. The guys in the previous year and the year before that, and I walked straight. Oh, wow. in, I walked straight into June. It wasn't like a placement; it was a straight. Here's a proper job. Yeah, straight into junior shit kicker, which was great. Um, wow. Apparently, I was replacing a lady or looking after a position for a lady 
who was um, having a baby, but she decided not to come back. But then nobody told me. But then 18 months later, I got a back back check for the 18 months' work I hadn't been paid properly for, and then uh, got them on full time. And then from there, it was it was it was um, you know like all kids in Australia, you win a couple of awards and you think I'm getting out of here, which is what I yeah. did, and I moved to London. And um, what were you hired as in London? Um, no. In, in Australia, your first job? Yeah, junior shit kicker. I was junior art director. And I worked, oh, right. with, um, I worked with three really great senior art directors. Um, and unfortunately, two have died since then. But um, one guy's still publishing books and, and is a wonderful illustrator. But back then, I learned everything from typography, kerning, spacing, um, the, the art of art direction, um, the subtlety of copy. Um, never yeah. change your copywriter's words just because they couldn't fit in the page. That was my job to figure out how to do that. Don't change his words because, as I found out the hard way, one guy wanted to kill me because I'd messed with his words. But, um, you know, I didn't know. But the great thing was I'd learned, just like a plumber or anybody else in a trade, I was learning from some really great creative people who um, later on in life told me that the, the thing they loved most because I wasn't, um, I wasn't an illustrator. I could paint. I could graphically design, but I wasn't a great logo guy. I mean, I'm, the thing they were looking at was um, you're an ideas person and you had passion. And I think that's probably what drove me through my advertising career. I mean, I knew what was good and bad. I knew great people could do great work. I knew people who hadn't got a clue could do great work. But I'd always, always learned from um, the guys that taught me, which was believe in people enough so that um, they think they can fly. And if they can, we'll surprise everybody. And when they do, they'll thank you. And I think that's kind of a, the sword I've lived by from back in those very early days. But you've had to, like everybody, you have to learn to make mistakes um, and, and read, read, it, read situations pretty quickly and understand um, that you're playing with people's money. And uh, it doesn't matter how crazy and wild you want to be there is a sense of responsibility because when you're told if that was your money would you do that you really have to swallow the sense of pride and go i don't think so unless you can really convince them that's that's a great point isn't it i mean because you know there's so much money at play and you know let's be honest a lot of advertising nowadays 95 percent of it's just awful and you know when somebody tells you how much the end powerpoint presentation costs i mean it's just it's criminal you know, in many cases, these these PowerPoint presentations with bad work can cost millions, can't they? And in the end, it just ends up being an absolute joke. But yeah, you're right. If it was your own money, you would behave completely differently, wouldn't you? When when you look at, uh, I guess today, um, when desktop publishing came out, it was the end of craft on yeah. mass. I mean, the house typographer didn't have a role. The graphic designer yeah. really had to think twice about how much effort he's going to, he or she was going to put into this particular piece of work because suddenly everybody can access, and this is where we are today, everybody can access a gazillion images, a gazillion typefaces, and it pisses yeah. me off when I see a bus go past with a big wrap on it and I can see the type spaces and they're all inconsistent, which really pisses my ADHD off and my sense of balance because um, whether I'm getting older and becoming a grumpy old guy, but it really pisses me off that some guy – thought that that was good enough to stick on a fucking moving object and someone yeah. like me has to sit there and realize the gaps aren't all the same <laughs> or um, yeah. 
The typeface there has been bastardized to the point that it's no longer a Gil Sands anymore. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, well, I think that's a, that's a, that's a problem we can all recognize, I think. Well, I think you're right. I think you're right. The, there is the lack of creativity, if we're going to get into philosophical conversations, the lack of creativity. There wasn't that conversation when I was a shit kicker, a junior shit kicker. It was how creative can you be was the conversation. Because mm. back then, and, and, I, and I'd love to be a fly on the wall when um, young kids today, and I talk about 30-year-olds, 20-year-olds, look back in their 30-year career and talk about the good old days because I look at the work now and I'm thinking, this is shit. Uh, we, all <laughs> polish, we all know how to polish a turd out the door. That's pretty good. Enough, enough rags with silicon in it to make any turd look sharp. But yeah. there's no idea. And if there is an idea, it's an idea that's an in-joke to a short audience. And then why is it on mass media? Why isn't it is why isn't it tailored to a digital audience somewhere that can get it and care about it? And yeah. it seems that um, the whole the whole effort now of being creative is about being tricksy and clever. And I think that's where technology has to come to answer for because a lot of technology um, is really as a, I mean, I used to see guys come in and say to me, "Oh, I've got a portfolio. I can do Photoshop. I can do I can do all these things." And I go, yeah, but can yeah. we stick figures on a square box so I can understand what it is you're talking about? Well, no, I, if you give me half an hour, I can get, I can make it, I can animate it. I don't give a shit. I don't want to animate it. I want what's the idea. And I, think, yeah. you know, I, I, used ask, I used to ask guys, and there'll be guys, if they're listening to this, and probably say, Christ, is he still peddling that old gem? But if you ask a creative person, what's the idea? And they'll go, well, Arnie Schwarzenegger walks in and says, no, no, what's the idea? But Arnie Schwarzenegger's yeah. got a cigar and he's going to say, no, no, but what's the fucking idea? Look, yeah. Arnie Schwarzenegger agreed to do the spot. So what, the, the spot to Arnie Schwarzenegger? Is it take him out? What's the idea? They're all into execution. And it's a shame. It's a real shame because the joy of doing great work, whether it's from a logo through to an illustration, um, is about what drove you to get to that place, the idea, the spark, the thing that no one's seen before that you're so passionately wrapped up in. And want to articulate and exercise and execute. That's that does I don't see that much anymore. And and when I do see it, it's such a great thing. And then then sometimes you really have to work hard on helping the creators, because some of them are quite young, to realize just what a fucking gem they stumbled into and to help them keep pushing forward on it. And you have to, you have to stop me if I end up sounding like some miserable old fart in institution, but <laughs> this is all about you know focusing on people that have a point of view and people that care i mean you're saying this because you care you're not saying it because you don't care um and you know you're talking about the start of your career where you were you know at sarchi's in in australia and that was your sort of your your foundation and you were just surrounded i, I imagine by people that you hugely respected and admired and i guess it's you know, to your point again about today you know when people are working in these big agencies perhaps there aren't enough people around to maybe mentor them to really give them that understanding and that foundation of, you know, this is what craft is, this is what an idea is, this is how these two things can marry each other. And technology is amazing, isn't it, for enabling mm. work to get out there and, and help people and, and communicate better. But when the technology overtakes the idea or the concept, then then you're in trouble. And that's why everything is pretty crap at the moment, because it sort of lacks any form of substance. But, but anyway, I... 
just sort of going back a little bit in in before we get into how you get got into London. I mean, how big was the agency back then? Because my my assumption is that Australia is quite a small market. It's a great creative market, but it's quite small. Hmm. Well, in Australia, I think it's twenty three million people. Back then, there might have been nineteen million people. There's a fucking English person in every business. <laughs> <laughs> so we had we had uh, Sarkis was. Um, Oh, boy, what was it? I mean, okay, it, it wasn't Sarchi's. It was privately owned small agency that did some really cracking creative work and was respected as that agency that did this cool stuff for these brands. And yeah. then it got bought. Sarchi's got bought by Compton. I'm sorry, Compton got bought by Sarchi's. But Compton had just purchased this agency. And in the space of about four weeks, a couple of guys rolled up from London. And one guy, um, who's still around, I'm sure, Bill Muirhead, Whilst through the agency with the drives are bone on, and he's a pretty enigmatic character and full of charisma. And um, my copywriter at the time had just won a, a gold Clio, which was like, shit, this guy walks on air and um, he's pretty amazing. And uh, yeah, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, which end of the pencil I sharpen. Um, although I'd won a couple of awards, I was nowhere in that league. And he, yeah. anyway, long story short, I was pointed out as one of the guys to stay. After after hours to be um, announced as the new Sarchis. Oh, right. But, and so um, that that um, that made the agency spectacular overnight. Um, it was already an incredibly well regarded, highly regarded creative agency with some of Australia's biggest names in it. Um, and they they were so good that they actually put a full page ad in all the national papers in Australia that said um, the agency was called MCR. Uh, we're closing our doors as of 12 o'clock Wednesday. So if you want to be part of a successful client list, you've got two and a half days to get in the door. And I think that pulled out <laughs> $20 million of the business. But it was that That's level. Amazing. It was great. Yeah. Oh, shit, I wish I, I wish I was that confident and arrogant to do that. But that was what that was. And that was, you know, and I'm going to touch on that subject now, I guess, a bit later, which is that was the fun of the business. That was the competitiveness. Yeah. That was the, the fuck you. But, hey, you know what? Good on you for doing it. Um, yeah. So it was about, I think the creative department was about six, 16 people. Um, no, yeah, 16 people, art director, copywriters. There was an executive creative director and a creative chairman. And then they had a media department and obviously a full blown accounts department. So there might have been about 120 in the agency. Oh, wow. It's quite decent, isn't it? Yeah. Look, Australians, Australia is a big place. It's just that when you step out of the towns, there's a lot of country in between Adelaide and Melbourne. Uh, there's an yeah. even shitload more between Melbourne and Perth. But in the cities, um, they are actually very similar to what big cities look like in other countries. Uh, so if the impression is, well, this is pretty big, but actually it's tiny. It really is tiny. And that's why a lot of Australians probably did what I did because I just followed what they did. And that is once you had a, a couple of um, awards that said that you're you're half decent and pretty good or good at what you do. You get out of town, you head off to England or go to Asia. Uh, back in those days, America really wasn't on, on your radar. And you wanted to get to London pretty quick or at least get to Hong Kong or Singapore. Um, Was London seen as the, the best place to be from a creative perspective? Yeah, because, you know, um, again, <clears throat> the American advertising, I guess, um, world or the sparkle around it wasn't really 
that that front and centre, whereas England was. You know, you, you would look at English advertising, DNAD, and all the rock stars, you know, from from England were were in those books. And and as I, as I said, there's an English person in every country in every company. Um, a lot of mm. English guys there did come in from Saatchi's. Uh, and so I was taken, I was in London, I um, was put in with uh, Paul Arden and Jeff Stark for a little bit, and I remember Paul Arden. Date-wise, where are we roughly in this journey? This would have to have been, um, geez, wow, late, uh, back end of the 80s, middle of the 80s, or somewhere in there, I guess. Yeah. So um, Paul Arden, I remember, well, you know, Paul Arden, holy shit, I mean, we shat ourselves every time we saw the guy. But I, what was he like? Look, he, he was um, an incredible person. I mean, he made, in the short term I had any time with him, um, I understood what was brilliant and what was great and what was shit because he was very good at telling you what was shit. But if you liked something, he would tell you. And he, and he remembered him saying to me one day, Dear boy, you're an antipode, and I don't have the time to um, to retrain you, but you know enough, and you're good enough. So I suggest you move on. <laughs> so I did, and um, I ended up working with a bunch of other Saatchi guys for a small design company that ended up being a classic multidiscipline design group during the '90s. Uh, it became one of top ten, London's top ten design groups, and I don't know if you remember Michael Peters. Um, I think we were close to merging with them when we sold out to McCann, but we had. I ended up being creative director of that company. And there was an office we had in Cambridge, in London Bridge, in um, Amsterdam, in Paris, and in Sydney and in Melbourne. And as a young age, I think at 27, I was made their creative director, which was fantastic. But it, at 27, yeah, we were working on all sorts of projects, all sorts of projects from Bennington car racing and the marketing of and the designing of the designs for the car, car graphics, and all the all the material that goes with it, all the way through to. Um, um, Financial institutions, the launch of the BBC microcomputer, um, Clive Sinclair's electric car, which really was a sack of shit, but um, it was fun during those days because this is where technology was taking us. So it was all of that, and then we sold into McCann. Yeah, I mean, just because you you sort of said that quite casually, um, you became CD at twenty seven. I just want to ask you a couple of questions around that. Like, was that always? One of your ambitions? Did you set yourself an age in terms of where you, when you wanted to become a CD, or how did that happen? Because I know a lot of people who are still juniors at twenty-seven, let alone mm. being CD. Well, you and, and I guess anybody that's worked with me, for me, or alongside me will know that um, you're only really as good as the people around you. And if you don't cherish those people and support them, you're never going to be successful. And so the guy that ran, who owned the company uh, was literally one of the guys who was out of Saatchi's in Australia. Uh, he just said, look, you know, you've got, you've got what I think it takes, and I've seen them all come through these doors and the doors in Australia. And um, I mean, this, I'm not trying to blow smoke up my own ass, but you ask the question, and the answer is he knew, he said, you know how to relate, you know how to get the work, and you know what it takes. And he said, there are three things you can't buy. So he gave me a break. And I like to think in my career I've given enough people breaks to give them their starts or give them something that they can lever off and um, make a springboard from. And if, if those breaks have been managed properly by them as they've moved on, they've done very well for themselves. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, so I just thought I'd just ask, like, you know, how that happened because <laughs> it's quite rare. When you said you're going to be the creative director, I, I said because um, he was a Geordie. And I said, you're shitting me. And he goes, 
no, I'm not shooting you. And I said, okay, so you're taking the piece. He goes, no, no, no. And I said, really? Like, like on tomorrow when I come in here, I'm going to be the creative director. And he goes, yeah. And be ready for it because there's some shit I want you to clear up. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, it was it was a total surprise and I never forget that. And I, I'll draw a comparison. When you when you promote somebody, when you hire somebody, you're not just hiring them, you're hiring everybody around that person's private life because everybody's an influence on that person. And when you um, promote someone, you're promoting them and the influence they have on everybody around them and also their family because that's where um, – Parents go. I always thought you'd do this, or you're you're amazing. I never thought this would happen, or whatever. It's a very personal thing. So that when you fire somebody, it's equally it's the opposite. It's traumatic because you're not just firing this person or letting this person go. You're creating a ripple effect that goes back through to the families and back through uh, everybody that's connected. So with all the great stuff. Um, there's the equal horrible stuff that goes with it. So those decisions are incredibly um, important and I don't think are recognized enough when hires are made because in this industry, um, and I'm, you know, other industries as well, but this particular industry, we're really good at fucking people up. We're really good at saying, he's just won two lines, so therefore he's a creative director of this group. Without thinking for one second, this guy has no people skills or this woman has no client relationships, or this couple together as a team have only ever worked with each other, nobody else. And then it's a recipe for disaster because nobody can work with them. They don't know how to work with anybody. Uh, Work can't be done. There's a bottleneck. Clients get jacked off. People are getting pissed off. And all of a sudden, there's a complete explosion. Equally, the opposite can happen. Um, They can do incredibly, incredibly well and rise to to the challenge. But there's no training. We don't put training out there for people like that, but we, we're very good at putting people in positions of where they really either sink fast or swim slowly or actually, you know, paddle really well and, and get to grips with it. So, um, yeah, I don't quite yeah, I don't quite know where that conversation was coming from or where it's going to, but it, 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 I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, in this industry, we, we do very well in, in doing workshops on strategy and uh, thinking outside the box and all the all the smoke and mirror terms that we come up with, but we'd never give the creative department the attention it needs. And that is, and here's an anecdote for you, you know, after the, the MD sets up the meeting with the client and uh, there's been two weeks of all-nighters and the strategy guy gets up there and does his bit and then uh, finally it's over to in the old days, a media guy. But finally, it's over to the, the MD to one more time introduce the creative guy. And just before you lean forward to stand up, he says, don't fuck it up. You've got, <laughs> you know, we've all had that. You know, oh, fuck, oh, shit. And then, you know, it's like it's, it's, it's southward, you know, <laughs> on roller skates. Um, we don't have any. Uh, uh, some people will call and go, yeah, we do. We do a presentation skills course, blah, 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 blah. The, the whole, the whole, the whole exercise of of mentoring and teaching and providing, particularly the creative department, with the resources to present and have confidence and have uh, the skill of storytelling, is only probably just creeping in this last five or six years. But I, I never saw that in my lifetime. And I remember once doing um, a thing. We used to have we used to have these creative sessions, 
and um, they were really great. So we brought all the um, we brought these global marketing guys together and the future creative directors highlighted by the agency, and, and we put all these directors and producers and musicians as speakers, not to talk about how great they are, but just to talk about the parallels of their world and our world. And one guy was a stand-up comedian, and it was brilliant because this guy, he said, can I have a warm-up? And I said, no way. <laughs> when we stand up in front of a client, we don't have a warm-up. We're, we're cold. We're straight into the room of people who hate us or don't want us there or whatever it is. We just don't know. And that's how he opened his presentation. And he he um, was definitely two hours um, engaging people who never thought that they could tell a story. And I loved that. I thought that was such a cool thing that a comedian, because as he said, the jokes I tell you today will fail tomorrow if I don't tell them properly or if the audience is just not in tune with me. And so yeah. um, to go back to the we don't have the, the, the lessons, we don't have the, the skills to be taught to be great presenters, um, I know that they're out there doing it, but um, I think that's something that we sorely need. And, again, I don't quite know how we got to this point, but it makes, it makes the creative department a place that will always surprise people, no matter how difficult the location or the, the consequences are, I think. What I got from that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it was just a real acute understanding of what makes a culture. Because, you know, a lot of agencies today, are sort of everything feels like it could belong in a box. Everything's sort of very template-driven. And, you know, if somebody or an individual isn't ticking particular boxes and they don't get a promotion or maybe people get wrongly promoted because it's not really – there's a set – it almost feels like you've got this sort of sixth sense of what's right and what's wrong. And it's a very difficult thing to to teach people that, you know, and it's very much part of the DNA and the culture of an org- organization because those things are very fragile. I loved what you said around family and, you know, introducing people in. It's not just about that individual. It's about the wider the wider effect that that person can have. And that, in, in essence, for me, what I heard was just culture. And again, just from an onlooker, from somebody, you know, peeking in through the window of, you know, when you were at McCann, they'd certainly felt, a vet. I think you as a network definitely had the the strongest creative culture out of all the networks. I mean, I don't think that's a, a question that anyone would debate. And I don't know, that's just kind of what I got from, from what you were saying. It was, it was more, it was, it was just at the heart of, of how you create a culture and how you protect it and how you, how you develop it. That's really funny. Thank you for that. And, and uh, you know, I did work hard to create that, but it wasn't wasn't deliberate. It was a really natural thing to do. Um, and I think um, can I mention the the forecast because uh, those guys, yeah, those guys, as you know, have been around, seen it, done it, and uh, like all of us, you start to see the same fashion come around the corner again. But culture is a word that kept popping up and up in, in our conversations, and. Um, uh, trust also is a key word and all of that. But when I look like, I'll try and get this back to where I, you know, to the original question, where did I come from? How did I get to where I'm at? So look, after Saatchi's, um I joined the small company we sold into McCann. Then with McCann, I won the Exxon business globally. Uh, I'd launched Sky TV in the UK and then um, won Exxon, and that took me to New York. <clears throat> put me on the internet. So sorry, was this, was this McCann consumer at the yeah. time in London? Yeah, yeah, I've only been, I'll get to healthcare in a sec. Um, okay, I was, okay. I was all consumer. And so my background is all consumer, really. I mean, Levi's, General Motors, L'Oreal, J&J, Nescafe, um, the whole lot. And so um, being moved to New York, 
I was all put on the international team, but I also ran some business in, in New York, the J&J business and some bits and pieces of others. But So where are we now, time-wise? Now we're in the 90s, the early 90s, 95, 93, okay. I think, 92, 93, I went over. And you were cool with that? You were cool just moving over to New York for that? It was New York. I was like, shit, I can't believe I'm going to the Big Apple. Holy crap. Where is this? This is, You can't get better than this. Um, yeah. Actually, it could because after a couple of years, I got asked to run an office, my very first office, which was Seoul, Korea. And that's where I really, really learned everything that if anybody says I'm successful, and it's not for me to say that, it's, it's what people might think or don't think, but my people skills and understanding and empathy and humanity, I believe, was all honed in as the credit, executive credit director of McCann, South Korea. They didn't speak Korean. They spoke English, but they didn't want to. The previous guys were, were expats who'd gone in, done their three years and pissed off, took the money. I gave my first half-year bonus <clears throat> to the agency because I didn't believe I'd earned it, and that went that did an awful lot to make them understand that I believed that I had to earn more than my salary. I had to earn their trust and respect. Um, we were the first agency to get into archive in Asia Pacific, particularly in the North East China or East Asia sector. Um, we got into great. What was that for? Oh, it was for a whole slew of things: for Coca Cola, for Levi's, for General Motors. Um, I created a, a pro program called the Smash Campaign, or the Smash Program, which was I believed every creative person knew more about the product and the brand than the account guy or the client did. And so for two weeks of the year, we could focus on anything you wanted in the agency, put forward ideas, be it uh, creation, <coughs> um, print, TV, whatever it was. <coughs> and um, we would call in favors from all the suppliers, produce the work, and present it to clients. Wow. And that's what that's we awesome. did. And then we started to win. And we won because we started to do work for real clients off real business issues. And um, we became uh, runner up for, I think, Ad Week or Ad Age. It must be an Ad Way, Ad Age, Age International Agency of the Year to Mother during uh, the late 90s, I think. And we were created Point of Light for Levi's, for um, Coca Cola. Um, wow. How big was that? Um the Korean office then? The Korean office then was, um, we had three three crate departments, I don't know, one, two, three, four crate departments, one local, three international. When I say international, one was L'Oreal, J&J, the other was, was Nestle, Johnson & Johnson, um, and the rest were Coke, Levi. So they're all personality-driven. All of them were female creative directors. Oh, wow. Um, the head of TV um, was... Um, was a guy that had been around for a very long time, incredibly passionate, very emotional guy, and a brilliant producer. He's now a director. Um, so from Korea, uh, I did four and a half years in Korea and didn't want to leave. And uh, moved back. I was given the job of being head of McCann London, consumer of the consumer agency. And so I was moved back to London as executive creative director of London. And uh, from there, uh, I was then moved into international. Um, looking after Nestle records, and after that, I was given Tokyo. So from Tokyo, I had Asia Pacific as a regional creative director, and I took McCann from, I think, like fourth or zero on the on the campaign brief or campaign uh, creative ladder to number three network inside three years, and we had three three uh, agency of the years, three agency of the year awards: Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong. Um, in multiple years, 
And so after Tokyo, Japan, and Asia Pacific, <coughs> excuse me, um, I really had done everything I could do. I mean, I don't know what else I could do. I know a couple, well, a couple of networks were asking me to join them to be their regional creative directors um, back on the other side of the planet. But it, was, it wasn't a challenge, you know. It was same shit, different, different house. Uh, and then healthcare came along. And healthcare came along, and um, it was it was an incredible thing because, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not a doctor, and I've never had healthcare. I'd, I'd won a bunch of healthcare awards for various consumer pieces for J and J, but not to the level uh, that these guys worked at or that you guys worked at. And um, in the end, I did some very quick work. To help them out, which apparently went down really, really well, and that, unbeknownst to me, um, convinced a lot of people inside the network that they wanted me. So it wasn't a, um, a leap of faith. It was just simply, if I do this, then I want to be able to say I want to create a culture of creativity, and I want to make a couple of things really clear. I want this discipline to be regarded as one of the most creative inside the world group, and to be regarded as one of the most um, creative leaderships, leadership companies in the healthcare industry. And that was where that all started in healthcare. Wow. God, that was, um, it was like listening to something like Game of Thrones. You're just <laughs> all conquering the world. <laughs> yeah. That was amazing. Yeah, you're only as good as the people around you. And I had, at each, at each and I've had some pricks who've you know, really done, done my head in, in London and overseas. So I understand what it's like you've got a bad boss. And I never wanted to be the person um, that treated people the way I had been treated by some in my past. We've all had arsehole bosses. But I did did want to do something if I was going to do it in this discipline, in this domain, because I knew how I regarded healthcare. And I'll be open. I remember thinking, this bunch of hacks with guys who've come to the end of their run and they're in the consumer agency and they've got nowhere to go. It's a photocopy department. And then <laughs> now I'm now I'm leading up this thing, and I'm like, shit! I've really got to change the way I used to think, which is yeah. like, there's my challenge, and I'm very competitive like that. Um, and I also need to change the attitude inside my own corporation, and then I need to prove to everybody that we are able to produce the work that everybody else looks at and goes, that's pretty cool. But we were winning mm-hmm. awards, and then we were a footprint in the industry as a leader, and then. Off the back of that then came Can and what the initiative behind that was and what, what my belief with elevating healthcare to a, a level playing field with consumer and the passion behind that, that all fed off from from healthcare in the early days. Yeah, well, let's get to health in a bit. I just want to just wanna pick your brains, actually, on a couple of things that you said. So I thought, again, it was one of those things that you just sort of naturally said, you know, as if it was just that no big deal. Where you where you said that you basically handed over your bonus back to the agency because you didn't feel that you deserved it. Had you seen anyone in your career previously do that before? That sort of gave you that idea of doing it. No, but I was I was in a um, and I didn't I didn't look at you know um, I'm no genius and I'm certainly no fucking rock star, but I think common sense tells you. Well, certainly in my mind, common sense and my sense of duty was that if I'm going to be, I've been charged to make this agency a success. They've had management issues and everything always falls on the creative department in the end. You know, where are the awards? Where's the great work? 
where the fuck is it? You're out because you didn't deliver. You know, guys. So I I was in a place where I needed to gain their trust. And this is something we'll be talking about on forecast later on. But I needed to yeah. gain their trust, their belief that I was going to be there for a long period of time. And I did I did the same in Japan. Um, I, I had to be, I had to convince people that um, I'm not here to take the money. I'm here to yeah. do great work, and I can only do great work with them. Um, and I'll come onto a comment in a minute, which was a, a real eye opener for me. I can only do great work with you if you believe in me, because I believe that they can do this. And so when I got, you know, whatever it was, and it wasn't a lot of money, but it was it was. It was the, the act of giving it back to the finance director, who then would have to be taught, be telling the staff he's given his bonus back because, and he wants people to be rewarded for the hard work they've put in and to spread the money. Because I think that's the beginning of demonstrating. <clears throat> sorry, that's the that's the beginning of demonstrating your role as a leader, not as "Hey, follow me, chaps. We're going to win the grand final." No, it's I'm here to lead by example, and. I'm into I'm into this deeper than the last and previous people are because I want this to be really great. Nothing's going to be as fantastic as this agency being seen as a shining star for what it's done. And it took 36 months to get there. So, you know, it wasn't um, a grandiose gesture. It wasn't something I thought about for a long time. I did tell my managing partner at the time he should do the same, but he didn't. Um, <laughs> of course not. Why would he? You know? So it probably helped the impression of me within the staff a lot yeah. more. And look, I still have incredibly close friendships with the majority of the creative directors and some of the very senior creators and some of the juniors who are now creative directors in their own right in other agencies with that throughout career. And we yeah. all, you know, they always talk about, you know, the fun, the great, but also, you know, I, I very quickly had to make it clear that um, I'm here for them. Um, and as, as most foreigners do, you don't talk loud to someone just because you can't understand them. <coughs> You've got to, turn, got to find another way to connect with them. And so we yeah. become good friends. Look, what I my day when I wake up in sweats in the, in the first six months there, shitting bricks because, you know, there were politics in the agency we were sorting out issues and all sorts of things that were going on. And like in any other company, it's exactly the same shit, but you take responsibility because this is your job. And um, I would get into work at 6.30 in the morning. The driver would pick me up. And, again, I wasn't allowed to drive. You can't drive because you're a foreigner. And if you hit someone, you're in deep shit and have to fly you out, med evac you out, whatever they're going to do. But <laughs> So I'd be picked up. I'd be in work at 6.30. I'd go to the photocopy machine, I'd take a good quarter and a half or a two-inch wad of photocopy paper, put a bulldog clip over it and get the job sheet and try and write an idea for everything on that job sheet before the staff trickled in around about 7.30, quarter to 8. Wow. Because, believe me, after two hours of review in a foreign language, your eyeballs are going sideways and we didn't have translators. So I had to, I had to teach myself to believe that what I was seeing was good and trust my gut that if it was bad, it's because it was bad. <laughs> and um, yeah. then one one heavy hitter from New York came in one day and looked around. He goes, oh, you're really busy. So what's going on? I told him, I'm doing, so you're doing a lot of the work. And I go, yeah, well, you know, a lot of it gets come through me. And he goes, well, you've got to stop doing the work. And I, I thought, are you, what, are you coming here to fire me? 
And he said, don't get me wrong. You're not here to do the work. You're here to get the work done and to get the work done by the people who will do it to your level once you leave. Of course, my paranoia goes, fuck, am I leaving? What am I leaving? <laughs> what, he was telling, what he was telling me was really, really simple, and I love it because if I hadn't been the, the fluster fuck that I was then, oh, my God, I fucked up. No, yeah. he's telling me, take your hands off the work and let the workers do what you want them to do. And that's exactly what I did when I created that Smash program, and that's exactly what I did when we got ourselves into Archive because every month there would be work shown to me at proof stage that the creative directors had approved because they knew that's the stuff that I would like that was being sent off to archive. And then the joy, the, oh, it was a silly thing, but the joy was getting an archive magazine yeah. and getting a paper case. You quickly flip to the page to the index to see the first Korean flag and make sure, yep, the can Ericsson. Boom, we were yeah. in. And it was so great. It was so great. Um, I, I've got friends yeah. over there who, you know, some obviously retired now, but they have the archives. And if I ever go back again in the next couple of years, but like six years ago I was there, three of those guys in the companies that they were running pulled out their archives and said, see, we got into that archive. It meant an awful lot, meant an awful lot to them. Um, but it yeah. all gets back to um, understanding, having empathy and believing and trusting. Yeah, well, I, mean, I guess it's sort of, you know, when you started um, talking about how you started off, you know, one of the things I, I remembered and I wrote down is you said, you know, it was all about following your heart and it sort of feels that you, you know, through this journey, that's all you've ever done and you've sort of built this, what I, again, what I find absolutely fantastic and inspiring is this sense of duty that you have and I think you've obviously you know, illustrated that sense of duty with many of these examples. But the one thing that I don't think I'll ever forget until I die is that the fact that you gave your bonus back, because there is not a single person that I know, and, you know, anyone can feel free to get in touch and let me know, of anyone in this industry who's ever given their bonus back to the industry, uh, back to their agency as a sense of duty, because you want them to get, you know, trust you and, and believe in you i think it's uh even though you 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 whizzed past it very very quickly i just wanted to pick your brains on that because i think it's a it's a big testament to, to you as a person and, and the work that you've delivered so that was amazing oh, out of interest yeah. out of interest do you ever have a mentor <clears throat> yeah um and it's funny you know because when you get to the crusty age i've got to which i never thought i'd be and I realized I am the guy at the end of the bar. I used to look at and go, shit, I don't want to end up like that guy. <laughs> um, yeah, mentors. Is, the term mentor, when people you know, say, oh, you're my mentor, I think, um, what does that mean? What, what does that mean? Um, or someone says, oh, that's such a sage comment or that's so full of wisdom. You think, okay, so now I'm definitely in the wheelchair and I'm definitely <laughs> at the exit. Um, it's only when I when I really understood what that what that term actually meant that I appreciate it. Um, and I think my mentors weren't um, people I would sit on the floor with my legs crossed, going and tell me another story. It was it was people who uh, I worked with every day, who I saw agonizing over things that they were doing that one day I would imagine myself doing. And understanding how they got to a solution that was just so great. And one of those guys was my very first um, art director, a guy called Stu Gameson. 
and uh, he was from England, and he was in that agency I started off in. And um, I, 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 would, I always marveled at, how did you choose that typeface? And why are, we, why are you cutting the O out of, out of the way so that there's no – the dot over the I, why are you cutting that? Oh, because I don't want it to crash into the ascender above because it's going to cause an ugly shape. And understanding what love and passion for crafting what a headline would look like, let alone being the author of the headline, because, you know, it's okay being the writer to write it, but the guy spent his time crafting that and then deciding, I'm not going to use a photograph, we're going to use an, we're going to use an illustrator. Or I really love the thumbnail you did, I'm blowing it up, and that's going to be the line drawing for the illustration. Knowing to make, figuring out how to make choices and decisions as you craft a piece of communication together. That guy, um, for me, was an incredible influence, as was the guy who made me a creative director at 27 because he just went by his gut feel and belief in people and how he related to me as a person. And his on, even though he was a business guy and, you know, you know, he, he wanted to make his money from the business he ran at the heart of his business was his love for the business. And so in that, uh, learning what it's like to, as I say, hire um, promote and unfortunately identify a weak link um, and understand that there's a decision that has to be made here and you have to be stronger than the decision for it to action, i.e. promotion or letting someone go. That guy taught me an awful lot in understanding um, people. And I think um, my final mentor would have to be a cluster of people um, and I'm going to just sort of say this openly. It was a lot of people at McCann who worked with me and through those people um, who are leaders in what they do now, uh, I learned um, the strength of being believed. And I think as an analogy, you know, would you trust um, a guy straight out of Sandhurst with flying colours, or would you trust the sergeant who's had two rounds of battle in Iraq to go into the next fight? You'd take the sergeant with a scar on his face in the two battles at Iraq in a heartbeat because he just knows, you just know he's going to take care of you. And um, yeah. I've said this before, you're only as good as the people around you. And in my last job, I had some of the most magnificently talented and dedicated to their business people. And that made me feel that um, a 30-year career was worth it in this industry. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly one of the one of the things that, again, you, you sort of make assumptions when you don't work for a particular network or a person. And, and again, an assumption that I always had was that you were very much one of those people that was in the in the firing line. You know, you were at the front line with the, with the guys. You weren't one of these people that was just sort of sat somewhere you know, and just let everyone sort of go into battle and just, you know, get ideas, let ideas be shot down. You were there to protect it and to sort of deliver those, those sort of ideas forward. So I guess, um, yeah, it's really interesting that you just said that because it just, it just sort of confirmed in my mind what I, what I thought. Out of interest, when you were saying when you were in your twenties and you were seeing, you know, fancy buildings and guys in really fancy cars and it looked like they were doing really well, 
at what moment in your career did you feel like you were you had reached that level? Um, somewhere along, when I was in the UK, <clears throat> yeah, I had you know a nice flash car and um, a sexy office. What do you have? Uh, I had a TVR. Oh, sweet. And I, I <laughs> had a TVR and I had a uh, an M an M one three two five I BMW, but um, but that's you know where the term Wayne Kerr comes in and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and after a while, I never really, I never really drove them. Um, I bought one back to Australia, which then was sold because uh, I spent all my time overseas. Sold to a Yorkshireman in Tasmania, who now has it as a, he's a farmer, and he has it as his track car. So I've always, I've always <laughs> said, I'm going to find that guy, I'm going to get that car, and I'm going to bring it back. Uh, of course, I haven't. Um, but yeah, look, I, I think the day I stopped having an office. Um, proper, a proper, I'm an advertising look at me, aren't I cool? Uh, was when I left um, England. Uh, I didn't have, didn't need a car in New York. I had a cool office. Um, when I went to Korea, I had a cool office, but I wasn't allowed to drive, so we had a driver. Mm. And uh, when I went back to London um, to run McCann, yeah, I had a, you know, a Volvo, I think. Volvo, you know, Volvo, black Volvo station. It was a pretty cool car. Uh, at least it got me past the credibility cap. It, it wasn't a rock or something. But, <laughs> um, but again, you know, I did, I did want a flash car, but I had no time to drive it because my day started at seven thirty and I usually finish quite late. So, um, yeah, later on, you just you don't. Um, they're not that important anymore. And I never really had an office after yeah. that because the offices ended up being um, meeting stations uh, and places to uh, you know, conduct a meeting and then move on to something else. So we've now, you know, you've done your Game of Thrones. You've sort of conquered the network, I guess, from a sort of consumer perspective. And now you've been um, sort of put in the global creative director role of McCann Health. Was there a global um, creative director before you? Or was this a first, a sort of a new new role? Yeah, I think there was some guy before me, but I never heard of him, and I don't think he had much of an impact. So I, I can't really comment about okay. it. Yeah. Okay. Where, where, what, what, what year are we now? Um, God, this must be uh, two thousand and. Oh, I was regional creative director before I became global. So um, global okay. happened around um, two thousand and ten, I think. Okay, two thousand. Oh, about ten years ago. Okay. All right, sweet. So what happened? Did you just go around the world and just go, okay, I've got all these offices, all the creative directors are really bad, I'm going to sack everyone and just <laughs> start again? Yeah, no, so look, when I when I took on healthcare, and, um, and I have to say the, the time that I had in healthcare was probably the most create, one of the most creative times ever, probably because I had um, a partner that was very much championing the creative initiatives I wanted to put in place to build a culture of creativity. Who's that? What's that John Cahill? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Is that you mean? yeah. So, yeah. I, I, you know, my, um, my job, my, my job is to be responsible for the creative product and the creative people who produce that product and for the delivery of that product. And in so doing, make sure I created uh, the culture and the DNA for the creative product and the environment for the people who worked in it to function and perform in. 
So without getting too fancy about the whole thing, uh, you have uh, a dartboard and in the center you have your key offices and as you go wider and wider and wider, you have less and less of those sitting right out in the fringes who the size of the who they are, the position they're in, uh, the level of business they're working on um, don't need that much attention. But I made it my commitment to be in every office, the key offices pretty much every month or every other month, um, the less every two months, ones on the fringes every five to six months. <coughs> um, and so therefore getting around the globe was a, an infinity rod that never seemed to finish up. But it gave me the opportunity to be um, lucky enough to know um, every creative director, in most cases every MD, well, they tend to they then tend to move on a lot, but in particular the creative directors and their people, which is my most important priority, and then to help them with the vision and the goals to achieve them by supporting them, and um, by giving them the support and the leadership, and then the community to draw on from the more experienced, the larger agencies, uh, that they would have um, enough to help them deliver and produce and then finally achieve what they thought they could never do. Well, that doesn't happen overnight. That, that takes a long time. That took nearly three years. And I started off doing an age-specific and got that product to be world-class, then moved to the UK and Europe, then onto the States. And then after that, the visual, if you can imagine, is a room full of spinning plates on poles. So, you know, first of all, don't kick them over as you stupidly walk around. You've got to Make sure everyone's working, but be conscious that the plate spinning on the outside is going to need some attention pretty soon because if it falls over, there's a domino effect. So mm. it was a, a continual um, – uh, it was a commitment to be continually in the lives of and be part of and be along the journey of each of those creative directors in their offices, big, small, um, or indifferent. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the sort of the theme of sense of duty – obviously has sort of stayed with you because you know a lot of global creative directors i mean most agencies are lucky to see them once a year you know and that's sort of like for a couple of hours or so but your your traveling just sounded insane i mean were, were you never were you just did you ever just think why am i doing this because you just must have been constantly exhausted well you don't realize that as i was saying to you before before we started talking this the the um the state your body's in after running forever like running in the heat until you stop, you don't realize that your body is actually exhausted and you're sweating your guts out. Um, I didn't yeah. know that I was internally um, not in great shape. So I went to a fat farm and lost a few, a lot of kilos. But you have life-changing moments, and I think they're the moments that you, you have to listen to your body. And so, look, the flying around for me wasn't a problem. I, I, how do I put it? Because I'm very competitive, and because um, I have one office doing great, great work and one not, the one not, I, I take it personally if they can't get to first or second base because yeah. I've asked them to get there. I've asked them to do it. Before I came along, they weren't even interested in first or second base, or if they were, they didn't know that they could do it. So to be on the, on the treadmill, I guess is the best way of saying it, to be on the treadmill, you become so used to being on it. You know, yeah, and uh, it becomes a way of life, and so um, it it didn't it didn't worry me. 
I mean, there was time, I mean, I look at photographs of myself now, and thank you, Facebook, for reminding me of what I looked like five years ago. Because I go, who the fuck is that? Oh, Jesus Christ, that's me. I didn't think it could get all of that into one square shape as a photograph. Um, you know, I didn't realize I was big, you know, and you don't. You know? And um, so, yeah, there was that. Um, and I, I still keep the jeans because I, I can't forget the day I walked into a shop and I said, I want 4X. And the guy goes, you need to special order that. And I said, no, you must have a 4X. How, how do you deal with the people who are obese in this town? And they said, you've got to buy the stretchy jeans. So I remember buying, <laughs> I remember buying the three triple X stretchy jeans. I don't know. Like staying at home in lockdown, I think we'll stretchy jeans. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's those things you just, you just don't, you don't take notice of. And um, yeah. they're the side effects of, I guess, doing a job like that. But look, I, I loved my job. I loved the people. I loved the work. I loved the fact that every year was a brand new year. And Every year had a challenge, and when I was the, when I was a credit director of Korea, um, the wonderful thing was that I was allowed to paint a wall in the reception and a horrible orange, and the only way that orange could be um, covered up or broken up was by toward the end of the year having enough awards on the shelves to cover that wall up, and that was kind of that was kind of a thing because every year I'd say take the awards off the wall. I don't want to see them. We can't be reminded of what we've done. We've got to we've got to produce better and do more. And so um, it became a, uh, a thing in the agency. Which when I used to go back to Korea, they used to show me the the, the trophy shelves. They go a bit dusty now, but back in those days, these were really really busy, weren't they? And they said it was so great. Yeah. That was that was the result of. Um, people who didn't know they could function and perform and deliver and, and produce stuff that was world-class. And, and look, it's not me. It's not me. It's them. And, and it was fucking so great just to see some young kid walk in with a, um, an Andy or a, a New York Festival uh, glass trophy or whatever it was they got um, because it was like kids with chocolate. You know, they didn't believe they could have a full bar to themselves. It was so fantastic. Yeah, that's amazing. It's great. That's really great. You don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, because I know it's probably like, you know, they're all your babies, you'll love them. But when you left, what would you say was the best creative agency within within the McCann network? Because uh, you know that you're right. They are. They, they're all. Um, but they, they go. Um, they go. I mean, it's probably best if I say it this way. You know, Australia had virtually nobody. And yet every year they produced incredible work. Singapore produced incredible work. They, they got work, they got in the Guinness Book of Records. But then so did um, one of the agencies in, in the McCann Health Group in New York uh, or in New Jersey. Um, it, 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 for some reason, it's a bit like, um, oh God, it's a bit like, you know, you can, you can be a champion and you can win but you're not always going to win, but you'll always be regarded as a champion. I think that's the best way to look at it. Every country, yeah. most countries, and the one that was really beginning to shine uh, when I left was our um, Sao Paulo office. Um, the Shanghai office was doing incredibly, incredibly good work. Um, the London office uh, was doing fantastic work. They did some brilliant work that 
set the benchmark in film and in and in integrated work. It was and in and in art direction. It was just stunning. Um, but they, as I said before, they're, they're all champions, and uh, I can't pick out one because it, it might be it might be the death knell for that agency going forward. But everyone has a different circumstance, and that's why I would get very emotional when when um, agencies were doing so great with what they were winning um, because I knew what it was taking them to get to that level because it isn't just the work, it's the clients. And if clients aren't on board and don't understand or don't find the value, even just to make the people who work on their products work harder for them um, as, a, as, a, as a hidden benefit, if you don't have the clients supporting or at least appreciating, you can't get the work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. And very diplomatically done as well. It was a cool question. (laughs) You know, again, you're, you're, you're quite blasé about what you've done and how you've done it and all those sorts of things. And, and I think with anyone who's worked in an independent agency and versus a network, without a doubt, without a doubt, unquestionably working in a network and, and getting great creative work out, is is way more harder it's and you know to have it so consistent as well because again most networks will have one or two agencies if they're lucky in the group has a good track record of doing great work that gets awarded all those sorts of things and the rest just churn out a load of rubbish but just earn a ton of money where where you had sort of gone throughout your entire network and there was a really great standard across the board, as you say, like that's why I asked you the question because it, it wasn't an easy one. I think if I asked that question to most global creative directors within their group, they could probably within a heartbeat go, yeah, London or Sydney or wherever. How, how do you actually do it? Can you just give us some tips? I know you, you go around a lot and all those sorts of things, but just is there, is there any advice that you can give a network global creative director who's struggling right now to sort of maybe turn around the Paris office or, or you know, something like that. Okay. How do you do it? Okay. Um, fuck, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. The, okay. So I hate talking about what I've done because it's, it's um, I just want to sound like a smart ass, but it probably, it goes back to my days working in Korea where I had to, um, I had to gain confidence and the trust of the people who were going to do the work to make this place successful and be brilliant. My passion inside health was that every agency was going to be an award winner and every creative person, whether it be from the strategy side, and we always say everybody in the agency is creative, but in the, in the employment section of creative, every person will have their hands on an award. So theoretically, every agency was, an award, was a globally awarded agency with award-winning creatives in the agency. What a great thing to claim if you're going to pitch. What a great thing to justify when you have great work. And what a great thing to say if you're an employer or if an employee, either leaving or coming to the agency. You know you're going to do stuff that's going to be something you're going to be so proud of and be part of uh, that's that uh, you haven't been able to do anywhere else. So you have to remember, I, I, because I've worked around the world, I was drawing on an awful lot of, or I do draw on an awful lot of things that aren't taught to you. They're, they're just learned or they're in your character. Uh, I like to think that they're learned. Um, and I'm going to say just as a plumber or a builder will learn the best way to produce the most outstanding craftsmanship for his trade is trial and error, um, more so 
by trial and success, but understanding when, when things go wrong, figure out how it went wrong so you can make it better first and then learn from it and make that the reason why success happens. So if I'm talking to a young creative director um, and I, I have a number out, there are a number out there who will always remember me um, because they did, they did okay and okay, and they're in, they're in foreign countries. But um, never forget that you're the guest. If you're a foreigner in a foreign country, you're the guest. You don't know shit. So don't yeah. sound like you do and don't pretend like you do and don't talk to people like you do. Listen. You have to fucking listen. If you don't listen, you're not hearing. If you don't hear, mm. you won't recognize. And all creative people speak one language. It's the universal language. It's like music. We all know what it is. Mm. So if you're a foreign guy in a foreign agency working with foreigners, be humble, um, be fair, and be ready to make the decisions by following your gut. Don't, don't make decisions out of mediocrity because a lot of decisions have to be tough. Um, if you're a young creative working in an English-speaking agency and you know, you're, you're, you're in it and this is it, um, I think it's important to understand that, and I go back to what I said before, you're only as good as the people around you. You've got to get these people to feel that they can do anything and you've got their back. When you audit the work, when you look at the work, have a reason why you don't like it and an example why and what the example would be if you were going to make it better. Don't do the work. Don't try and outdo your teams. A creative director always seems to fall into the problem, into the situation where they take the best briefs and they do the work and they get all the glory and everyone else does all the shit. Smart creative director will do the, will work on the shittiest client to prove to the agency he can get better work or he'll take the heat with that shitty client while they focus on clients that prefer and appreciate better work and understand what good work looks like. It isn't a science. Yeah. It really is, I think, uh, an education in being um, being well, in humanity, in understanding people and being empathetic. Um, and also, you know, be smart enough to know if the wool's being pulled over your eyes um, or if someone thinks that they're going to pull a fast one on you. You know, you're in the seat that's going to take the heat as well as the shit. Because um, yeah. last week you complained about the crap work you have to work on. This week you're in charge of it. So it's a, it is a responsible job, but you're representing the values of what everybody's going there for in the creative department to work for. And that is to be a great creative doing great work. And great work has to span from paying the bills to surprising clients. And um, so then you have to learn to pick your battles. But most importantly, um, be there for your creatives, be seen, be open, and be embracing. Don't think you've got the big job so you can sit in the room with a big chair and close the door and become uh, the recluse. Those guys are losers. And uh, yeah. you can only work with people who um, huddle around you, giving you a false sense of security. If you were a football team, you wouldn't make um, the best player the captain. Because the best player needs a team to perform, right? Yeah. So quite often yeah. the creative director shouldn't be the most talented creative person in the agency. He's bigger than that. He's more than that. And his job is far more complex than that. But he has to be a decision maker and an identifier of um, original, unique, and be willing to take a gamble. 
on um, championing work that is going to be uncomfortable, but knows that if he can get that through, there's so much more that he's got from his people. Yeah, that's great. That's really great. I mean, I hope that, you know, that made a lot of sense to me and I hope it helps a lot of people out there too. Um, and I think, you're, you know, you're right. I mean, I think everything you said makes complete sense and it is about the people and maybe giving them permission to to be different and do different things. Um, so that's great. You know, what do you think was the hardest thing you ever, you ever had to do? <clears throat> Give a presentation of something I knew fuck all about. Really? Look, I, I'm in healthcare. Um, and I remember standing up and having to give a presentation <clears throat> to a big horseshoe, a uh, horseshoe room, which probably had about 30 people in it. And um, I had to tell them I was going to take them on a journey of ideas so that I could explain why we got to where we got to and why that particular idea that we were going to show them um, had science supporting it, but it was more than the science that was important. It was about um, the idea supporting the science messaging. And it was not something I've ever done before. Um, and it was for a brand that was very, um, a very sensitive product. And uh, we won the business. And probably because I got, I don't know, I got quite into the work and talking about the work. And in the wrap up, um, the communications uh, officer of the room came to me. There was a woman who was in Europe, and she said, um, we've never had anyone talk to us about our brands like this before. And I I, I said, I, I don't know why you haven't had that. And she just said, because um, people think that the medical world is boring, and so we're so used to being sold stuff, uh, communication passages, etc., because they make matter-of-fact sense. And this this was um, an eye opener, and it was great. I mean, it it actually made me feel a lot more comfortable. But Jesus, going into that meeting, I'm wearing pads, believe me, because <laughs> I have no idea how these people were going to react to me, um, and being, uh, I guess, so tied up in what I thought was the most important thing, which was the idea. You're just being yourself. I think that's where the best creative presentations come from. You know, there's no sense of bullshit attached to them. It's just taking you through their ideas. And, and that's always quite a personal thing. Yeah. Um, I've, I've heard you speak a few times, you know, at Cannes and, and, and a couple of other places. And I've, you know, I thought you were pretty amazing at presenting, actually. I never thought you were, you, you, you hated it. Um, you hit it very well. Well, <laughs> but at Cannes, um, I was introducing people who were fantastic. I was setting up the platform to bring in, um, you know, an astronaut or yeah. the director of Game yeah. of Thrones or Elena Shula, the guy who pioneered GoPro filming and, um, you know, people like that who, you know, wow, I'd have to be a moron if I couldn't stand there for 47 seconds and sell those guys. Um, but, but it's quite, again, that's quite daunting too. And I still remember stepping out the very first time at Cannes um, to the can health the very first time and how big the auditorium was and how few people it seemed that were in there to the last yeah. time I was there when, when I looked up and I thought this place is packed. It's so great. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And I know you probably had loads, but you know, what, what do you think was your proudest moment? Um, in, in my whole advertising career or in health? Yeah. You could, uh, yeah or, or health either, whatever. I think, um, 
you know, we set CAN up because we wanted we want a level playing field for healthcare to play on. We wanted, and I believe that every healthcare person, if they could win a CAN finalist, um, it still stood with pride in their offices as opposed to some glass trophy from something you really couldn't remember from. Um, so <laughs> to set up, set that up and have people winning um, and have people come on stage and just looking at their faces, uh, that was pretty incredible because I remember one time, um, and this, I guess this, this might be, I mean, obviously standing on stage and winning Network of the Year second year in a row was pretty amazing. That was pretty yeah. awesome, actually. But there was a moment in yeah. the after party, and um, one of the can cameras were running around taking, you know, bits of footage and stuff. And they said to me, um, "What do you think of, of Can Health this year?" And I said, "Well, have a look around. How many smiling faces? How many cool people? And how much fun do you think the healthcare industry is having? Because now they have a home, a legitimized home at an award show." That felt pretty good because. Um, I know the first year that we were there, we were in a back room judging and there were no sandwiches and the coffee was cold and some builder was eating the cookies. And that pissed me off. <laughs> but I think, um, I think honestly, realizing and, and seeing, and I remember saying this to you at the very beginning of this conversation, seeing shows like your show and people, um, and they're not enough of you, people like you, Shahid, who are doing things for the industry because it's worthy and the industry's deserved of it now. And, um, protecting it from becoming what it could be, which is um, taking for granted the work that it does. Because the awards aren't the most important thing. They're just a way of measuring how good we are. But there's a shitload of good work with a shitload of good people behind it who haven't been exposed yet. And um, I think that's that's probably a great place for someone else to pick up and go, how do I find them? What do we do about them? And how do we give them their space? And how do we how, how do we help them? become recognized they probably don't want to they probably tell to piss off but i just think i think that the award shows um are a great incentive but at the same time they just they can't they don't they don't have the opportunity to reach out to everybody um and and help them see what they can do yet but i'm sure they will what are you up to now okay what well, at the moment um i'm fortunate enough to be looking around and enjoying certain projects that i've been invited to be um, collaborating on in film, um, in design, and in events. Oh wow! And so I'm deliberately keeping um, away from the, you know, the predictable, which is you know going back into where I came from, and and yeah. uh, letting you know letting myself just feel good about uh, where I am, what I am, and where I'm doing it, and how I'm doing it, and the work that's coming my way because. Um, I can't talk about it just yet, but there's some really lovely stuff that's bubbling up, and it's 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 special. It's it's really good, and it's helping people do. I guess it's doing what I was doing originally with with my previous job and previous role, but in very in in, in other areas which um, I'm really enjoying because uh, I'm being stretched and I'm learning and I'm and I'm uh, and I'm enjoying that. Amazing. Amazing. I'm, I'm glad, you know, you're doing well. Um, and I just want to, you know, thank you for your time today. It's just been a massive honor. I mean, I've learned so much from this. Um, and, you know, I, I hope everyone else listening to this is going to undoubtedly going to get something from this. You've been a huge inspiration, Jeremy, to the entire healthcare industry and, you know, obviously the consumer industry 
before that. Um, so on behalf of everyone in our industry, I'd just like to thank you. You've um, you, you personally been a huge inspiration for me. Thank you for inviting me and um, thank you for your kind words. And Shahid, from the day you started the, um, the creative floor, which was a very, I think, was a, an incredibly maverick um, thing to do in an industry that's highly, incredibly cynical and possibly overloaded with awards. I think what you've done is elevate <clears throat> the creative standards and the desire to have work entered into a show that's tough. Um, and you've done that in such a short period of time and built such a powerful reputation um, for that award show globally. I just want to say thank you for sticking with it and being, um, I guess, the, an ambassador, but I think champion is probably a better word for the creative people in the healthcare industry. And I want to say that only because um, I think you should hear it a lot from people because an awful lot's taken for granted by um, too many. Um, and too many people are celebrating success without understanding what it takes um, to have the qualifications to reward, award, and um, recognize work that, that can be successful. Because the quality of the award shows um, can be broken into three categories, global, world-class, um, national, regional, and the wannabes. And there's a shitload of wannabes out there who <laughs> are happy to bring a client along and slap the back drink too much champagne and pick up a couple of weird-looking glass things that you'd never put on your mantelpiece. And I think all the way down to what you've done with the actual award of a brick really um, goes um, to, the, to the ethos, I think, of what you set up, which is um, a very honest, different, but very purposeful award show that isn't going with convention. And to just to wrap that up, the quality of your judges have, as I've been watching over the years, um, have really impressed. You know, not that I give anyone gives a shit about me, but I I really believe that the quality of an award show judge panel um, identifies the quality of the work or represents the work of that show. And your show has never uh, looked average or mediocre. It's been a bull out of the gate from the first day. So. Just to finish up, thank you for for doing that for the industry because it was sorely needed. Oh, thank you. That's you know, that's, 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 um, that's extremely kind. Thank you. I I, uh, I always find it very difficult taking compliments, so uh, we'll move on. But thank you. And yeah, anytime you want to come back on here and chat about new projects, just give us a shout. Um, Otherwise, yeah, take care and we'll chat soon. Shahid, you're far too kind and thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Cool. Take care. Bye-bye.